Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That, uh, with episode 187 on an undercover cop of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back. And we're not doing that. We're here to talk about all things NXT and AEW as we roll through a huge week in the world of professional wrestling. We had a big NXT championship match over on that program. Tuesday, AEW ran its first show in front of a live audience outside the state of Florida in you know basically 400 days. And WWE this weekend is coming back in a major way with money in the bank on Sunday. We have an absolutely loaded show for you today, but we actually have a loaded week of episodes here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. If you have not listened to it already, our WWE Money in the Bank Ultimate Preview, it's in the can. We published it on Tuesday. Be sure to check our feed and listen to that show as soon as you are done with this one. Then Getting Over is going to be back on Friday with a very special WWE Money in the Bank Go Home Show. We'll talk about some stuff that happens on SmackDown leading into the pay-per-view. We'll break down some WWE news. There's a ton of DMs that I got over the last week. We're going to answer all of those on the show. And the cherry on top of that proverbial Sunday is a one-on-one sit-down conversation between your boy, the Silver King Adam Silverstein, and the former WWE champion, Kofi Kingston. You guys know how big of a fan of Kofi the Silver King is, and I am so excited to bring you the interview that I had with him. I taped it earlier on Thursday. It's fantastic, if I do say so myself. Do a little Barry Horowitz on the back here. Trust me, you are going to want to tune in Friday as soon as SmackDown goes off the air for that special Money in the Bank Go Home show and the interview with Kofi Kingston. And then we will be back, of course, on Sunday, 6.30 p.m. Eastern with a live WWE Money in the Bank pre-show. You can catch that on Twitter spaces. All you need to do is follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, and you'll be able to listen to the show via the Twitter app on iOS or Android, or even the desktop or mobile website. As long as you have a Twitter account, you can listen to that live show. It's from 6.30 p.m. Eastern to 7 p.m. We will end before the WWE kickoff show starts, so you will not miss a second of what WWE provides in its massive show in Fort Worth, Texas. And then lastly, we close out the week Sunday night. As soon as Money in the Bank goes off the air, you know it, you love it. WWE pay-per-view instant analysis like only the Getting Over Wrestling podcast can do it. So a huge week of shows. This is number two. We're just getting started. Let's get into it, right? Let's not waste any more time as long as you give the Silver King one opportunity to remind you what this show is all about. It's all about the five. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King, for Vintage Chris Vanini, for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop a five-star rating. Drop a review. Tell people why you love this show so much and convince them that they should listen to. Okay, the business end of this shit, it's out of the way. So let's get into the actual wrestling. We're going to talk NXT on top. We're going to move on to AEW. We're going to break down everything that happened across both shows. But as always, all you need to do if you want to skip around, if you heard one and you want to jump to the next, if you only watch AEW, if you only watch NXT, 
head on over to our episode description. We will have timestamps for each segment so you can listen to exactly what you want to on today's show. But of course, as always, I hope you listen to the entire thing. So let's get started with NXT on Tuesday, where look, outside of the main event, let me say it was a solid but relatively unspectacular edition of the show. There was nothing bad that happened on the entire program, but also nothing particularly spectacular outside of the main event and the finish. And that's basically the same thing we got from NXT last week. So we'll start with the main event, we'll break down that entire show, and then as I said, we'll move on to AEW Dynamite Night 1 of Fighter Fest after that. So the main event was the NXT Championship, Karrion Cross defending the title against Johnny Gargano. Samoa Joe approached Cross while he was training to go over the rules of the match as the special guest referee. Cross ignored him, so Joe got between him and a heavy bag for a stare down. Joe gave the exact same speech later to Gargano, who was really happy to abide while trying to butter him up ahead of the match. Pete Dunne stared Joe down a second time, and after the entrances and all the ring announcements, this match ended up only getting about 14 minutes, which I did think was short, especially for an NXT main event with the championship on the line. Gargano attacked before the bell. He had a cannonball off the ring apron, but Cross no-sold it and threw Gargano into the corner of the announce table. It looked like he hurt his back, but ultimately he was okay. Gargano countered an avalanche Doomsday Saito into a crossbody. Then he countered a cross jacket into the Gargano escape, but Cross got out of it, put the jacket on again, but Gargano was able to fall forward to break the submission with the ropes. Joe had to push Cross off when he, real, when he realized he was not going to break the hold, and there was another stare down between them. Cross slammed Gargano's head into the glass, the hockey glass at ringside, and gave Joe an up yours gesture. Joe stopped Cross then from using the steel steps and dared him to do something. Gargano flew through the ropes with a tornado DDT outside, then hit one final beat inside for only a 2.5 count. He didn't even get a near fall really on it. Uh, Cross hit a forearm to the back of the head and then did this awesome sequence with three power bombs and then a transition from a power bomb into a fireman's carry into a doomsday Saito. He did not go for the cover. He added one more of those forearm finishers just for good measure and the clean win, staring down Samoa Joe as he counted the one, two, three, and then laughing in his face after the match ended. Uh, Joe threw Cross's arm down after the post-match announcement when he declared him the winner. Cross took exception to that. They did a fourth stare down. Uh, Cross then dared him to take the referee shirt off. Joe just dissed him with a glance. He kind of like waved his fingers at him and Scarlet. And Cross reacted by locking him in the cross jacket and putting him to sleep as NXT went off the air. So I was a little bit down on this match. I guess you could say through the first 10 minutes or so. But things really picked up, business picked up over the final four minutes of the match. We got a great hope spot with Gargano and a tease of a title change that many expected, but we told you on this podcast, was not going to happen last week. I went with, you know, 3.5 stars and a B for it. Maybe it's a little bit less, 3.25, which would still be a B, but that's just arguing over a hair. It's, it's minor details. It was an entertaining match. And again, the finish in the post-match sold it more than the rest of the match itself. The details I mentioned added so much to the entire thing. And you cannot like carrying Cross in the ring. I'm never going to argue about that. I'm not a huge fan of him in the ring either. But the character work that he was able to do in the storytelling that he was able to do, not just with Gargano, but with Samoa Joe throughout that entire match, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was massively entertaining. And again, we've said this for a year now, maybe even longer. This guy's going to be a great fit on the main roster 
whenever he gets called up. He's a better fit for the main roster than he is for NXT. Joe being choked out was an awesome close. It totally piques my interest for next week. I presume Joe is now medically cleared, uh, considering how physical he got here. He wasn't the one putting a move on someone. He was someone taking it. But of course, at the same time, he didn't really take a bump. But still, if you're not medically cleared, I don't think WWE is allowing you to do that. And that does create the easy booking of Samoa Joe possibly taking the title off cross at the SummerSlam takeover, which has not been announced, but reports are it's going to be the Sunday after SummerSlam, which is going to be pretty interesting. But that would give Karrion Cross a clear entry to the main roster with a completely acceptable, non-embarrassing loss. Let's just hope it goes down that way, really for the sake of Cross, but even more importantly, NXT, because that main event scene, there's just, it's it's weakening right now because basically everyone else in it is much smaller than Cross and he's beaten all of them. He, he just, he beat them all in a fatal five-way match. So where do you go from there if you're not giving Bronson Reed that opportunity? So again, let's just hope this is leading towards the conclusion of his run as champion and or on the NXT brand. Now, staying with this kind of main event picture, Dunn, Pete Dunn said in an interview before the match, that he didn't care who won because he could take either Cross or Gargano one-on-one because he's the best technician in the world. Timothy Thatcher stepped up and then Tommaso Ciampa attacked. So it seems like we're going to get a tag team match next week with Oni Lorcan involved. Uh, This is going to be a no doubt banger when it happens. Uh, We'll move on from the main event into everything else that happened on NXT. Kyle O'Reilly did an interview with Wade Barrett and he said losing is a part of life. He knows that he'll fight Adam Cole again but he needs to find the fire inside to not just beat, but finish Cole for good. Now, maybe I'm reading into it a little bit too much because of of how I've booked the damn territory on this podcast, but it seems like it's going down the right path. It seems like that could lead to the loser leaves town match that we're all expecting. We'll see if that actually happens, but that was a little nice tease from O'Reilly that definitely got me interested. Adam Cole later cut an I told you so style promo about proving he was better than O'Reilly and having the only sanctioned win over him. Then he turned his attention to Samoa Joe, saying he doesn't scare him and that no one in the locker room can step to him. That brought out Bronson Reed, who said he has nothing to lose as everyone wonders what his next move is going to be, alluding to what we've talked about on the show, a potential call-up to the main roster, which seems like more a matter of not if, but when. Uh, Cole attacked, Reed squashed him, so I presume we're going to get a send-off match either next week or the week after that. Joe then came out to officiate the main event and he even stared down Cole for a moment. Now, both of these segments really worked well together. And while nothing was exceptionally praiseworthy, it kept the Cole O'Reilly storyline alive while giving Cole something else to do in the interim and read potentially a legitimate way to exit NXT, unlike what happened with Shotzi Blackheart, Tegan Knox, and possibly Tony Storm as well. To move over to the women, uh, we had Ember Moon against Dakota Kai. This opened the show. NXT explained Shotzi's departure by saying she had her, quote, contract selected by SmackDown. Moon drilled Kai with a strong Tope Suicida into the barricade. Kai dropkicked Moon under the bottom rope and wrapped her around the ring post. Then she hit her with a Huluva kick and an inverted swinging DDT, all for near falls. Moon got a hope spot with a Hurricanrana in the corner, but Kai dragged her over the top rope for a draping GTK and the win. After the match, Zia Lee entered. She stared down Raquel Gonzalez challenging her for the women's title. So my initial thought going into NXT on Tuesday was that Moon would beat Kai and then take Shotzi's place as Gonzalez's next challenger. That made the most sense. Instead, the exact opposite happened with Moon 
getting relatively dominated in a loss to Kai, who hadn't won a singles match since March. Uh, Zaya Lee looks to be a quick replacement for Shotzi, so I guess that Gonzalez can get a quick win last week, excuse me, next week. The match was very good, but the booking of this entire thing I just thought was strange, and we're just going to have to kind of see how it plays out to have a better idea what they're going to do, but I don't really blame NXT because it's WWE, uh, you know, Vince McMahon or Bruce Pritchard or whoever made these call-ups that kind of screwed up their storytelling in two major feuds, women's feuds. So we have to give them at least, I don't know, two weeks to sort things out, let's say. Uh, We had Bobby Fish against Tyler Rust in a singles match. So they finally gave us the diamond mine breakdown I've been asking to get, but we got it as a taped promo that first aired on YouTube and then was replayed on NXT. So I didn't love that when this is a big group that got introduced, right? Malcolm Bivens explained that Roderick Strong is the fighter, Hideki Suzuki is the coach, and Tyler Rust is the prospect. Then Bobby Fish stepped up to accept an open challenge, but Bivens gave him Rust instead of Strong. The match was short, Strong distracted Fish, and Rust pinned him after a kick. That was it. Uh, Kushida saved the post-match attack, so clearly we're going to get a tag team match here. This just felt very low card from the start of the entire thing. Diamond Mine made a big debut, but it really has no momentum whatsoever. They had all those vignettes, all those kind of video packages promoting it. They attack at the end of a, a championship match, and you're like, oh my God, this is great. And then it's just like, okay, they're guys wearing all black doing a training gimmick. Like we've seen that before. So right now, despite me really liking Roderick Strong, loving Malcolm Bivens, having appreciation for Tyler Rust and Hideki Suzuki, this group just feels like it needs something. It needs some energy, some life. We need Bivens like cutting his hysterical promos live in front of the crowd, not taped backstage. So this wasn't a zero by any means, but it just was disappointing. And I'm kind of waiting for this to deliver the way that we thought it was going to, considering all the push that Diamond Mine got. We'll do another singles match, Santos Escobar against Dexter Loomis. Legado del Fantasma cut a promo backstage with Escobar saying Bronson Reed got lucky that he avoided him coming after the title, while the others in the crew said Hit Row has no class. Escobar then said Loomis is a loser in love and was going to lose their match too. Loomis tried to pull Escobar under the ring when it started, but Legato saved Escobar. This was really slow and lackluster of a match. It was not a good look for Escobar going up against someone like Loomis. It just didn't fit his style whatsoever. Legato saved Escobar when Loomis locked in silence, giving Escobar an opening to hit the Phantom Driver for the win. It was a much needed and totally necessary victory for Escobar, don't get me wrong. And no damage was really done to Loomis because they cheated. But Loomis is kind of just middling around with the Indy Hartwell storyline, and that's really the only thing he has going for him right now. Hit Row after the match got in Legato's face on the stage. Every incarnation of a feud between these two groups would be awesome. The potential six-man match, the tag team match, Swerve versus Escobar, all three of those are going to be exciting. Maybe Legato can even add a woman to the crew somehow, and they can go four on four or have a women's match. That would be awesome. I'm totally down for Legato against Hit Row. Uh, Indy Hartwell got stopped by Beth Phoenix as she was entering the Capitol Wrestling Center earlier in the day to ask about Dexter Loomis. Indy said nothing happened when Loomis carried her backstage last week. So Beth explained to her that sometimes you just got to take a chance on love. Indy tried to carry Loomis after his loss to Escobar, but she dropped him on the way up the ramp because he's too heavy. And they fell on each other on the ground, nearly kissed when Candice LeRae ran in to push Indy off being a total, I guess, V-blocker, right, would be the more appropriate term considering it's women. 
Uh, we'll stick with the women and go to another singles match, Saray against Gigi Dolan. NXT showed Dolan challenging Saray last week after Tony Storm turned her down. Mandy Rose, then out of nowhere, surprisingly showed up a few minutes in to watch the match from the stage. Saray hit her awesome basement dropkick, decapitating Dolan over the bottom rope, and then followed with her Saito-style suplex finisher for the win. Mandy appeared impressed, nodding her head, and then she left. I'm not quite sure how you mix Mandy and Saray, but there's no doubt that it's intriguing, and it tells you all you need to know about NXT, that I find this exciting and interesting, and would have assumed that, let's say the same thing happened on Raw, that it would be a total disaster. It just, I trust NXT to book it well. I also want to give credit to Saray, who showed some improved presence compared to her first couple of appearances. We talked about her needing to find that kind of mystique the same way that Io Shirai did. You know, she started off kind of milk toast, kind of just, oh, a really good Japanese female wrestler. And eventually Io found her really special gimmick. And I think Saray, she's not quite there, not even close actually, but she was able to show a little bit more energy and presence and enthusiasm. And for that being a first step for her being so young, it was a really good step in the right direction. We'll stick with the women and do a tag team match. Caden Carter and Casey Catanzaro against the Robert Stone brand. Casey hit the elevated 450 splash finisher for the win in a short match. I won't rant again how much I like this team and how I think they should be on the main roster. They should be a raw women's tag team yesterday. But okay, I guess I just did the rant anyway. After the match, Aaliyah pushed Stone twice, screamed at him, and then slapped him across the face before punching and kicking him as Jesse Camia watched and did nothing. Aaliyah got significant face cheers from the crowd, and then Frankie Monet came out, whispered something to Camia, who followed her backstage with Robert Stone walking behind them. And then backstage, Monet said no one needs to worry about Aaliyah anymore, and Mandy walked up making a quip about the brand being under new management, even though Stone was with Monet and Camia. I thought the whole idea was going to be Monet stealing them away from him, but the fact that she's now part of the group and Aaliyah's gone is a little bit counter to my expectation. So I'm interested in seeing what happens here. The booking itself is a little bit confusing. I would assume that Aaliyah got called up after more than five years in NXT. She's certainly capable and she's a good low-card woman to have on the main roster, but I'm just not sure about her long-term success in WWE if that is what's happening. Jesse Camia pulling Aaliyah away from her. She didn't really have anything going anyway with Robert Stone. Them as a pair didn't, so it doesn't hurt her. I guess potentially teaming her with Monet or having Monet be a little bit of a guiding light for her, a mentor, maybe that will work. Certainly it's going to work in a real sense, like in the ring, just like Candice LeRae working with Indy Hartwell is clearly benefiting Indy. I think this could benefit Jesse Camia in a similar way, but from a storyline perspective, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen. It's just really interesting that NXT has now lost two women's tag teams in a week and they don't even really have any to start with Shotzi leaving Ember Moon and now Aaliyah leaving Kamiya. And we'll talk on Friday's go-home show, the WWE show I mentioned earlier, about all the women's tag teams that WWE has lost as we move forward. But man, it is just, I don't know. We've said it a million times on this podcast. The idea of one women's tag team division across all three brands was great. They never actually allowed it to work the way it was supposed to. The idea of having two separate women's tag team divisions despite the women deserving the opportunity to be front and center, it just feels like it's 
an extra championship without people to contend for it because WWE refuses to allow women's tag teams to develop, solidify, and become real units like the Usos or the New Day, you know, or even for to a slightly lesser extent, the Dirty Dogs, Lucha House Party like that on the main roster. You got to allow teams to actually be teams. And Caden Carter and Casey Catanzaro are a great example. They started teaming, they grew, and then they became a really, really good team together. So you have them, you have the champions, you have Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez. That's it. I mean, that's about it in terms of official tag teams now. In NXT, three teams for one title. That's about what you have on the main roster across two shows. Three teams for one title. That does not work. All right, we'll move on. Cameron Grimes started his job as LA Knight's butler with a makeover and Grimes bought into it because he said he's a man of his word. His positive attitude about the whole thing really pissed Knight off, especially when Grimes hired a kid uh, to mow the lawn. Grimes wound up in tight, like Calvin Klein underwear and accidentally pushed Knight into the pool. This was not great. It wasn't good. It wasn't bad and it wasn't ugly. It was like fine. There were a couple moments that made you smirk but if this is what it's going to be, and we're going to get similar vignettes or not vignettes, video packages, uh, you know, tapings outside of the CWC, then I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm still enthusiastic about it. Uh, it it just didn't deliver the way I expected it to, given how well some of their recent interactions have gone. Let's move over and wrap up NXT with the breakout tournament. Uh, we'll start actually last Friday with 205 Live. We had Josh Briggs against Asher Hale in a qualifier. Briggs seems to be the total package. I got major Dan Severn vibes from him. And I don't know if anyone else did because I tweeted that and no one replied to it. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no one saw it. But that's what I think of Josh Briggs. We also had Odyssey Jones against Grayson Waller. Jones has my favorite name in wrestling right now. He wore orange and blue checkerboard tights that popped me personally as a Florida Gators fan, even though I didn't necessarily think they looked that good. Waller hit a flying elbow drop, passing a fake ball between his legs with Jones hanging over the middle rope. Later added a rolling cutter from the outside into the ring. Waller got a second elbow drop and tried to take Jones out with a triangle choke, but Odyssey Jones instead hit a double axe handle and then the world's strongest slam for the win, an homage to Mark Henry, which is pretty cool. Uh, So Jones, cool, good luck, impressive dude, and definitely excited to see him in the tournament. Now let's get to the first NXT breakout tournament match officially that happened on Tuesday. We had Ekamin Jiro against Duke Hudson. Jiro got a video package about competing in WWE being his lifelong dream. Hudson, who's the former Brendan Vink, if he looks familiar, said he's not perfect, but he's close to perfect. He showed a lot of personality in a very short promo. Jiro wrestled in a jacket, which I believe was his gimmick in Japan as well. He got Hudson in a tarantula, but Hudson cut a springboard into a toss suplex. Jiro reversed a crucifix bomb into a near fall and hit a blockbuster plus a springboard moonsault, but Hudson caught him during a rally with the boss man slam for the win. I thought this was a great look for both guys and they definitely have a future. The match was a fun contrast of styles as well. Hudson's ceiling is particularly high and I know that it was more in kayfabe than anything else that Wade Barrett referred to him as a younger version of himself. But I gotta say, he kind of did look and feel like a younger version of Wade Barrett. So look, I'm happy about what we got from Hudson. He was probably the right person to win, even though I would have loved to have seen Jiro go a little bit further. But this is a good repackage for Hudson, and it was a solid way to start the tournament. Now, we'll wrap up here with NXT with a DM. And even though I have this 
awesome new soundboard with a ton of, you know, really great new sound drops. There's a lot of beef out here. I don't have the DM sound, so you're not going to hear that. I will get it soon. But we did have a DM from Chad Plasinka at I Don't Exaggerate. He said, as any brand built up stars and talent like NXT has established the women's division, Ali and Zayali are immediately thrust into the spotlight and the bottom of the card got time. Mid 80s, early 90s, WWF mid card might still be the top of the totem pole though. You know, I think it's a yes and no, right? Like NXT has done a fantastic job building up women's talent. But the examples, Chad, that you used, Aaliyah and Zayali being immediately thrust into the spotlight, Aaliyah didn't do anything that she hasn't kind of done before. And her getting called up to WWE into the main roster, if that's what happens after five years in NXT, actually kind of shows that even though she's improved, she hasn't really developed to the level where she was a can't-miss prospect that WWE had to call up. And Zia Lee, I have to say, despite you know liking this new gimmick with Tian Shaw and finding her refreshing and you know something different and new to the product, after that initial kind of debut, it's kind of fallen off. Like the entire thing, it's what's the point? What's the motivation? What's she doing? Uh, I mean, she kicked the shit out of Mercedes Martinez and, and concussed her. So that's not certainly a positive. So I do think that NXT does an incredible job building and developing women's talent. I just don't really know that you gave the best examples of that. I think examples of that are Zoe Stark, Io Shirai, even though Io came in as a finished wrestler from an in-ring skill standpoint, they repackaged Io into a completely different type of character. What they helped do with Asuka is a fantastic example. Rhea Ripley and Bianca Belair, Sasha Banks back in the day. Uh, Bailey as well. So there, is, there are tons of examples of NXT doing a great job with women. I don't think necessarily Aaliyah um, and maybe Zia Lee are those best examples. But nevertheless, it was a very good episode of NXT. Like I said, the matches, really the main event was the standout of the entire show. The storytelling, you know, it wasn't bad. It just, they're really lacking clear direction on stuff right now. Like it just doesn't feel like anything in NXT is super important, except maybe the NXT title. Even the women's championship, they have a lot of great people and talent on the roster. Ember Moon, Io Shirai, Candice LeRae, Dakota Kai. But you have Raquel Gonzalez as champion and like there's no one stepping up or there's no one at least clear as a number one contender for her, right? Even though we know Zia Lee is gonna get this match. And they kind of have to get to doing that. Like there should be some type of, progression, four or five people that you know over a period of time are going to be the ones challenging for the title. And it just kind of feels like they're stuck in a rut, largely as well, because Tony Storm, it looked like they were finally going to start doing something with her. And now she's off to the main roster. She's going to get introduced on SmackDown, I'm guessing on the 23rd, the, the Friday night after Money in the Bank. So regardless, it was a good NXT, not great, but certainly a good show to watch and always a well worth it, two hours of television. So let's move over to AEW Dynamite Fighter Fest Night One. First thing I wanna say is AEW should run this venue that they were in all the time. The stage looked incredible. The way the seats were set up, it looked like there were twice as many people there as were actually in attendance. The entire presentation here was a huge improvement from last week in Miami. And it felt like the first truly big wrestling show in front of fans since the start of the pandemic. And I know what you're gonna say, well, wait a minute, what about all the Daily's Place pay-per-views? And what about WrestleMania, which was in front of fans? All of that's true, but 
Fans are pushed back. They're not prominent on the screen in all of those matches. And even if they were, there's only a couple of rows. This one felt like an arena full of wrestling fans for the first time since the start of the pandemic. And that energy came across through the broadcast. Also, for the second straight week, I mentioned this last week, AEW just nailed it from a storyline standpoint. And I discussed last week enjoying the NXT matches more, but AEW putting on the better overall show top to bottom. And honestly, that's exactly how I feel this week. There were some good matches on AEW. I don't necessarily think any of them was as good as the NXT main event, but it actually gives more credence to my takes from last month when I was very critical of Dynamite and I kind of insinuated that it had bottomed out creatively because it's now clear that Tony Khan and company were saving the juice for the return to touring, which of course is extremely smart and what we thought they were doing. That doesn't change the fact that last month's episodes pretty much sucked, if we're being honest. Anyway, with that all out of the way, let's get started in another really good edition of AEW Dynamite. We'll start with what I found to be by far the most important storyline and certainly the best thing that we got on the entire show, which was the confrontation between Hangman Adam Page and Kenny Omega. So Page was interviewed by Tony Schiavone. He recounted failing in his first try to win the AEW title. And he said, Dark Order was right. He can't hide from it, but he must go after the championship. He was in the middle of officially challenging Kenny Omega when Don Callis and the Elite interrupted. Matt Jackson got in Hangman's face and said he abandoned them on his way to being the next great wrestling tragedy, which is a good line. Hangman punched him and was about to get nailed from behind with the title by Omega when Dark Order came to his rescue. Hangman said he wanted a match and Omega offered a five-on-five kind of faction warfare elimination match. Page said he'll do it with the stipulation that if they win, all of them get title shots, which I presume means an AEW world title shot, a tag team championship shot, and then an impact tag team championship shot. That's what I believe he was saying. Omega went face-to-face with Page. He accepted it on the condition that if Dark Order loses, Page loses his title candidacy because he's afraid to fail. And Page accepted it, despite you know presumably being afraid to fail. This was just a perfect wrestling segment in every possible way. It hit on the promos, the intensity, the storyline development, match booking for what we're going to get next, long-term storytelling, really just about everything you could want, this one succeeded in providing. You could say the entire segment as a whole had it. That was a good one, yeah. It, It was a good one, Randy. Yes, it was. It also adds a great wrinkle to the feud, and it pushes off the inevitable title match probably until All Out, as we expect. So even though we know Dark Order is likely going to win this thing, the journey and the subsequent title matches are all going to be interesting because you're going to be able to do those other matches before you eventually get to Page versus Omega. Uh, We'll move on to the main event of Dynamite, which was Darby Allin against Ethan Page in a coffin match. Darby wore a steel plate on his back and immediately hit Page with a standing coffin drop at the bell. Scorpio Sky then emerged from the coffin to attack Darby, but Sting made the save and they brawled their way through the crowd. This was the fourth time in two weeks that AEW has started a match that way with the seconds, if you would, the people who accompany wrestlers to the ring brawling either before or after the bell and brawling into the crowd and that kind of taking away from the start of the match. I have no idea why they do it so frequently. One time, sure, that's a totally fine piece of booking. Why are you doing it four times in two weeks? It just, it doesn't make a shred of sense. Uh, Darby got caught flying off a bomb and was drilled into a barricade twice. 
Page also screwed off the bottom turnbuckle. So the only two ropes that were active during the match was the top rope and the middle rope. Darby drop kicked steel steps into Page, which rolled him into the coffin. That was the reason they removed the bottom rope. Uh, but they started fighting in the coffin. They both used a hook from the bottom rope in a bunch of spots that were not quite believable because it was this huge metal hook going into someone's mouth or their neck. It just, I don't know why they bothered to do it. I, I know people loved this match and I liked it. Don't get me wrong. But there's some of the spots were just kind of ridiculous. And then Darby hit a cutter, but Paige came back with an avalanche ego's edge into the steps, which to me is the finish. You're hitting your finisher into steel steps and all you need to do is roll the guy into the casket. But they didn't do that. Instead, Darby grabbed his skateboard and did a drop kick with the skateboard off the top rope into Paige, who was on the ring apron, dumping him into the coffin and closing the lid. So just for a coffin match, it was like, how is that the finish? How is that the thing that keeps this guy inside the coffin and allows you to win when all the other crazy moves didn't? It just was lackluster that getting hit with a board from a a drop kick like that is the move that's going to take you out of the entire thing. Now, what was really nice about this is AEW gave Darby time to celebrate after the match. Usually the show ends really quick or they do a run-in or something crazy. They didn't do that here. They gave him that opportunity for the fans to kind of serenade him. And the way Darby celebrated that serenade was just by saying, you know what? I didn't get too hurt in this match or hurt enough in this match. I'm going to go do a coffin drop off the top rope through the closed coffin for no good reason whatsoever. I don't care that it was no good reason whatsoever. It was a sick ass spot. So this was an extremely exciting match. And like I said, there were some damn good spots within it, but I thought Paige's finisher was the best thing that we saw in the entire time. And the finish with a skateboard drop kick, it doesn't make sense. The crowd liked it. And I guess that's what's most important in the end. I went with 3.5 stars as a B. I probably shouldn't have. I probably should have gone a little bit lower at 3.25 stars. I just think giving that rating to so many matches in the last two weeks, it's kind of mushing them all together. But this was really fun. I just didn't really think it was a worthy main event, I guess is the best way I can put it. And I know many will disagree with me on that, but that's just how I felt. Dynamite opened with the IWGP United States Championship on the line, John Moxley against Carl Anderson. The crowd was hot for Mox to open the show, which is no surprise. I still don't like Wild Thing as his entrance though. His old AEW song was perfect. It was a great entrance theme for him. AEW just get, and Tony Khan just get so obsessed with like licensing songs for people. Wild Thing, it brings back, you know, Rick Vaughn, right? From Major League, the movie. Who was he a little bit of a wild dude? Sure. But John Moxley's a psychopath. Like it's a completely different type of wild. So for me, it doesn't work. The crowd seems to like it. Good for them. Uh, Just like last week, this started with the seconds fighting near the bell as Eddie Kingston and Doc Gallows went into the crowd. I said, I said this a minute ago, they did it four times in the last two weeks. Mox bit Machine Gun's cheek for some reason. I don't know why he did that. It was a very NJPW style match. Anderson hit a gun stun, but couldn't make the cover. Then he hit another for a near fall. Mox caught a third attempt flying in the air, Eclipse style with a Rainmaker, and then hit Death Rider for the clean win. It was solid, but a relatively unspectacular opening match, but it did its job popping the crowd with the most over person in the company, who is John Moxley. Lance Archer backstage cut a promo challenging Mox to a rematch of their Texas Deathmatch for the title on night two of Fighter Fest. Mox later accepted. 
saying that he's the only boogeyman in New Japan and AEW. Nice, simple, short promos from Archer and Mox, but man, Archer loses every major match he's had in AEW. So my hopes aren't too high for the booking, though the match itself is going to be an absolute banger. We don't need to guess about that. Now, perhaps Mox does drop the title. Maybe they swerve me and surprise me because they want the title back in Japan and Mox may not want to go this year due to COVID-19 still being a major issue over there. And he has a newborn child. That would make a lot of sense. And a change would be good. It would also give Archer a huge win on TV over Moxley, which Archer really needs. And honestly, Moxley can suffer a loss. And if it's going to be in a hardcore match, you can create a reason for him to lose. So if I was booking it, I would actually have Archer win this. I don't know if AEW is going to. Andrade El Idolo sent a message to Death Triangle that he's looking for them. AEW ran the promo, which was in English, but they did subtitles underneath it. And that I've said this a million times. That's exactly how WWE should have handled Andrade and should work with Shinsuke Nakamura and Asuka, among others. But it was nothing really to this, but the idea of Andrade and Penta, Andrade and Phoenix, Andrade and Pac, those are all really interesting. Is he going to be with them? Is he going to fight them? We will find out soon. The FTW title was on the line, Brian Cage defending against Ricky Starks. There was a solid storyline entering this match, but for some reason, I didn't find it too compelling, mostly because the FTW title is meaningless. That does not mean I didn't like the match, though. Uh, Cage hit an awesome pump handle Falcon Arrow-style face buster, and then a super kick for near falls. Starks came back with a pump sit-down powerbomb for one of his own. Fans were mostly behind Starks in the match, even though clearly Cage was the face. Powerhouse Hobbs stopped Starks from using the FTW title, and Cage caught him with an F10, but Starks shockingly kicked out of the finisher at 2.9. Hook then distracted the referee, and Hobbs hit Cage with the title. Starks followed with a spear for the surprise 1-2-3 to really pop the crowd. I went with 3.25 stars and a B for this match. This was a ton of fun. Starks is more charismatic, and he should be a great leader for Team Taz. He got a great pop for the win, and he looked really good after some early nervousness. I think this is probably one of the biggest matches of his career, or at least maybe in front of the biggest crowd of his career. So it was really cool for Starks to get that moment. My one gripe was commentary not spending any time on the fact that this was a faction crumbling with Cage seemingly being excommunicated from Team Taz. They treated it like it was a normal title change without any ramifications. They did say that, yeah, you know, uh, Taz was really excited that Starks won, but they didn't get into the fact that this entire faction just turned on the guy who was the crown jewel of the entire thing when it started. And I just thought that was a massive missed opportunity. Uh, Moving on, we had Cody Rhodes who rushed to commentary to grab a headset and yell that Malachi Black uh, tried to get over by hitting the black mass on an old man and Arn Anderson. Then he grabbed a mic because he wasn't done talking and dared Black to answer him. Black did that on the big screen told the story about a man killing his prized horse because it was crippled and needed to go down with dignity. And if that promo sounded familiar to you, it's because Cody told that story just a couple of years ago. And that was a very smart feud and and storyline callback with Cody. Black then said Arn and Cody had lost the fire and passion in their eyes. Cody dared him to come down. And all of a sudden the lights went out and there was Black showing up in the ring out of nowhere They brawled. Cody was wearing an all-white suit. Black, of course, was in an all-black suit. 
until they were separated by officials and then AEW very quickly went to commercial. I loved every second of this. I just wish AEW didn't cut it off so fast. They have a tendency to do that, marinate on it. We wanna know if they're gonna keep brawling. We wanna know if it's gonna actually be a separation. Don't just cut to commercial right in the middle of something really, really exciting. That said, that out of the way, this is a great opening feud for Black and I have zero doubt that Cody is going to do the job for him to put Black over. It's also probably Cody's best promo in nine months. So he deserves some credit for that as well. Santana and Ortiz backstage acted like they were going to attack Tully Blanchard with a crowbar, but they stopped because they said they respect their elders. That was really all that happened in like 30 seconds. Chris Jericho backstage said he doesn't care what trials MJF puts in front of him because he'll walk through fire to ensure they fight again. Sean Spears came in with a telegraph chair shot to the neck and MJF explained Jericho's first trial is gonna be against Spears in a match where only Spears can use a chair and Jericho cannot. Spears then delivered an awful chair shot to Jericho's arm, very, very weak, that ended the segment. This was really poor in execution. I'm not sure how you tape that segment and then not rerun it a second time. Like it was just very poorly done. And that's maybe the first time I've ever said that about a Chris Jericho and MJF segment. A Chris Jericho or MJF segment, let alone one involving both of them. We had Matt Hardy against Christian Cage in a singles match. They each used the ropes to choke the other. Christian hit a spear for a near fall and a frog splash for another. Hardy came back with a true superplex from the top rope for a near fall. Hardy then caught Christian with a leg backwards for a low blow and the referee was blind to it so he didn't see it. Then he hit a twist of fate, but Christian kicked out. Hardy then put the leech on Christian outside, but Christian beat the count at nine. And as soon as he got in the ring, immediately hit the kill switch for a win. Now, I don't know if the show was going on long and the referee made a call to end the match, but that was exceptionally weird. Jurassic Express saved Christian from a potential Hardy family office attack. Fans seemed to enjoy this. I gotta say, I was indifferent to the entire thing. It was cool to see two old foes fighting, but the match was mediocre and the finish was terrible. So I just had to say that. Miro told a story about his journey to being God's favorite champion and he showed off an updated AEW title in white and green. I like the idea of the title being redesigned in that way for each champion in theory, but the black and red design was nicer looking than this. And really it was a good representation of the TNT title itself being that TNT's colors are of course black and red. Uh, Britt Baker was interviewed by Shivani and said, Nyla Rose is the top of the food chain, but she's off the menu, which is an incredible line. Baker said Vicky Guerrero's last name is the only thing keeping her relevant while she's the hottest thing in pro wrestling. It was a fantastic promo start to finish. The response by Rose and Guerrero backstage sucked. And my prediction for next week, it's easy. Baker is going to retain the title. We had Sammy Guevara against Wheeler Utah in a singles match. As someone who does not watch the dark shows, I had no idea why this guy came out with best friends, but it was really nice that Excalibur and AEW explained it. They showed video and Excalibur like told me as someone who was not aware of this guy, why this was all happening and why it made sense. Sammy had a nice standing shooting star press, but Yuta blocked a regular one. Guevara then hit a springboard cutter and the GTH for the win. Yuta's a bit green, but it was a nice match and a reaction for Sammy in front of his home state crowd. QT Marshall poured a protein shake on Tony Schiavone's head backstage. Why are we still doing this with QT? I don't give a damn about this guy. I don't think fans care about him. Stop it. This is a low card AEW dark, maybe elevation type of storyline. Get it off of Dynamite, given the roster and the talent that you have now. And then lastly, Penelope Ford 
faced Yuka Sakazai in a singles match. Yuka did a cool deadlift brain buster and hit a basement clothesline for a near fall. Ford hit two pump kicks for one of her own. Yuka followed with a helicopter face buster and a magical girl splash, which is like a springboard twister for the win. This got about eight minutes, but at least half of it was during a commercial break. It's the same deal as always. So I, I don't know if that's necessarily better than what we get on SmackDown, right? Like the idea of a four minute match on SmackDown sucks, but the idea of an eight minute match on AEW where half of it is during a commercial break, is it really that much better? I, I guess technically it is because it's more time and they get to actually wrestle, but either way, it's a huge disappointment from the AEW women's division. At least there is a title match next week that we know is going to get good time. So as I said, AEW, it was an extremely good show. It was more of a storytelling show than a wrestling show. And that's two weeks in a row. And again, I'm 100% okay with that. Like I'm thrilled that AEW is going so deep into the storytelling and the booking aspects because fans are popping for it. They have a really fresh new face for their show in Malachi Black that they're taking advantage of. We have Kenny Omega and Hangman Page developing, which is exciting. Darby Allen, despite me maybe not loving the match, uh, it was a very good contest with Ethan Page. It was well-wrestled. It shows you how sick these guys can be. And John Moxley had an IWGP US title match on an AEW show, which is super cool. Plus, we also got whatever's happening with Team Taz, even though we don't exactly know what's happening and they didn't do a great job really explaining it to us. So I'm excited for Fighter Fest Night 2. Again, two weeks in a row of great AEW Dynamite episodes, three weeks in a row of very good two great episodes. So there's really every reason in the world to be excited about this product moving forward. And certainly I'm excited about NXT as well. It just kind of needs to pick up its game a little bit. It feels like WWE has screwed up its booking with some of their call-ups that have already happened and some that are going to be coming. And we got to give them at least, you know, two or three weeks to kind of get back in the swing of things and figure out what direction they want to go. The direction we're going to go here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is to our next episode which is coming up Friday. It is the WWE Money in the Bank special go-home show. We'll talk about some stuff from SmackDown, WWE News, all of your DM slides. If you have new ones that you want us to read that you haven't sent already, send them in between now and the end of SmackDown. I'll make sure they get on the show. And of course, do not forget, we will have our one-on-one interview with none other than Kofi Kingston, the Silver King, Kofi Kingston, Kofi Mania, we are going one on one. Put your meat on my meat, man. Gently now. I mean, we're not going that far, right? But it is going to be a great conversation that you guys definitely do not want to miss. Do not forget then to tune in Sunday, 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Twitter Spaces for our live pre-show of WWE Money in the Bank. You can listen to that via the Twitter app on iOS, Android, or the website on desktop or mobile. And then Sunday night, as soon as the pay-per-view goes off the air, WWE Money in the Bank instant analysis. You know it, you love it, you know what the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast delivers to you that no one else does. Instant analysis of WWE Money in the Bank. So folks, this show is almost over. I would be remiss, though, if I did not remind you what we're all about. So please go ahead. It's a busy week. The Silver King's birthday is Friday. Give me a gift. That gift, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show. Give people reasons 
to like and subscribe. And by the way, word of mouth is huge. Tell your friends why they should listen to the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. And do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. So not only can you join our Twitter spaces, but so you can participate in pre and post show polls for Money in the Bank. So you know every single time a new episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is released. And of course, so you can follow along with us while we watch Raw, SmackDown, NXT, AEW, and pay-per-views live. We do that commentary. We share WWE news all week. We are a great follow at Getting Overcast. That's it. I will bid you adieu for today. I will see you on Friday with that special WWE show. But at this point, the Silver King is going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now. <laughs>